Welcome everyone to episode 29 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. And y'all, I'm sorry for not getting an episode out last week. I don't know about you, but the heat of the summer travel season is just barreling down on me and Sometimes you just find yourself in places that are not really conducive to recording a podcast. Anyway, thank you all for bearing with me, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. When feudal Japan's most powerful warlord, Nobunaga Oda, met Yasuke, a black slave turned retainer, in 1591, He believed the man was a god. Oda had never seen an African before, and like the locals in Japan's then capital of Kyoto, he was awed by Yasuke's height, build, and skin tone, according to Thomas Lockley, author of African Samurai, the true story of Yasuke, a legendary black warrior in feudal Japan. When Yasuke got to Kyoto with Jesuit missionaries, there was a massive riot, People wanted to see him and be in his presence, says Lockley, who spent nine years researching and writing the book, which was published last month. Oda believed Yasuke to be either a guardian demon or Daikokuten, a god of prosperity, usually represented by black statues and temples. He tried to rub the pigment from Yasuke's skin, believing it was black ink. Once convinced Yasuke was real, he immediately threw a feast in his honor, says Lockley. In an era racked by political espionage, merciless assassinations, and ninja attacks, Yasuke was seen as an asset. Nobunaga soon made him a samurai, even providing him with his own servant, house, and stipend, according to Jesuit records. Today, Yasuke's legacy as the world's first African samurai is well known in Japan, spawning everything from prize-winning children's books to a manga series titled Afro Samurai and his legacy continues to spread worldwide. Earlier this month, Black Panther star Chadwick Boseman announced he would play Yasuke in a Hollywood movie scripted by Narcos co-creator Doug Miro. Lockley says his story has re-emerged just as homogenous Japan re-examines the concept of multiculturalism in the run-up to the 2020 Tokyo Olympics. Yasuke's origins remain a mystery as historical sources are scant, While some researchers believe he was from Mozambique, others suggest Sudan. Lockley suspects that Yasuke was abducted from his family as a child by Arab or Indian slave traders and trafficked through Arab countries and across the Indian Ocean. He likely worked as a slave and trained as a child soldier who fought in the Gujarat and Goa in India before being hired as a valet by Jesuit missionaries from Portugal. At the time, Goa was a prime trading, missionary, and military center for the Portuguese in India, and one of the largest centers of the African slave trade. It's where Lockley speculates that Yasuke met Alessandro Valignano, the most powerful Jesuit missionary of the day in Asia, who made him his valet and bodyguard. The pair and their entourage arrived by ship in 1579 at the port of Kuchinatsu in Nagasaki, on the southern Japanese island of Kyushu, according to Lockley. 
Valignano, who had spent six years traveling from Rome via countries such as Portugal, Mozambique, India, Malaya, and Macau, hoped to convert thousands of Japanese to Christianity. But his mission would not be easy. When he arrived in Japan, the country was embroiled in a brutal civil war that ended only in 1603. The period, known as the Era of Warring States, saw hundreds of strongmen from many states across the country battling for power. A semblance of peace was restored when the remaining local feudal warlords, or daimyo, sought to unify Japan. Nobunaga Oda became the most powerful among them. He controlled Kyoto, the dominant center of the country, and is viewed as one of Japan's three unifiers, along with Iyasu Tokugawa and Hideyoshi Toyotomi. But even his ascent did not stop minor warlords and bands of radical armed monks and bandits vying for territory, according to Lockley. Valignano needed protection. Yasuke was tall and used his military experience to detect risks for the Jesuits as they formed alliances with local warlords, says Lockley. He trained other militiamen and likely learned new techniques himself, including Japanese martial arts and sword skills. Such skills would later appear to Oda, who also looked to Yasuke, by then conversant in Japanese, for news about the wider world. Yasuke was initially viewed as a source of entertainment as he was a novelty, but within a month, he'd become a valued samurai and a member of Oda's entourage, says Lockley. According to the sources, Oda just loved talking with Yasuke. At the time, the samurai, groups of warriors well-versed in warfare and the arts, formed the ruling class in Japan. Given that there are no records of how much Yasuke earned, Lockley says it's hard to know how highly he ranked. He speculates that the African was the equivalent of a page or a bodyguard to Oda. But while Yasuke became Japan's most famous foreign-born warrior, his time with Oda was short-lived, of the Iga province, according to Lockley. Oda attacked the mountain-ringed province, a ninja hotbed with 40,000 to 60,000 troops, and conquered it following a failed attempt by his son, Nobukatsu, in 1579. It was, says Lockley, Yasuke's first military campaign under Oda. His second and last such campaign was in June 1582, when Oda's samurai general, Mitsuhide Akichi, attacked Oda's residence in Kyoto. The attack, which triggered what was known as the Battle of Honoji Temple, put an end to Oda's plans to consolidate power in Japan. Facing defeat, Oda ended his own life to avoid losing his honor. He performed a ritual called seppuku, which saw him stab a short sword into his stomach, slicing horizontally while his attendant, Ranmaru Mori, lopped off his head. Legend has it, says Lockley, that Oda's last order to Yasuke was to take his sword and his decapitated head to his son. Oda's head couldn't fall into someone else's hands, Yasuke's job was to keep the clan power, says the author. After Oda's death, records on Yasuke became scarcer. The last possible references to him, according to Lockley, were from Jesuit accounts in 1582. According to Gary Leah, a professor of history at Tufts University, Yasuke was taken prisoner by Oda's enemies, but later released because he was not Japanese. Yasuke had become a ronin, a samurai without a master. 
Lockley speculates that Yasuke could have either resumed his previous role of guard to Jesuit missionaries, or become a sailor or pirate. While Yasuke's existence has gone down in the history books, he was by no means the only foreigner in Japan. At the time, Kyushu was home to a large population of Koreans and Chinese. Many Europeans, Indians, and Africans also passed through the country. Their presence is documented on the handcrafted folding screens of the era, which depict their arrival on large black ships and their life alongside the locals. Such ornately decorated screens belonged to the upper classes and were produced in the early 1590s. One portrays a wrestling match between a black man and a Japanese warrior, which Lockley assumes are Yasuke and Oda. Yasuke really comes to the fore because he served Oda. We have sources on his life, name, deeds, and character, says Lockley. Others like him weren't that well documented. We can't bring a picture of their lives. Yasuke's life has often been reimagined through fiction. In 1968, author Yoshio Kurusu made it the basis of a prize-winning children's book called Kurosuke. In more recent years, there have been Japanese TV historical dramas and comic books. And as debate on multiculturalism and diversity intensifies in the nation, Lockley says it's the right time for Yasuke's story to be told again. There's still a kind of romance and mystery to the story of someone who escaped slavery and was raised to foreign heights next to the prime ruler of Japan, says Lockley. It feels like the age where he'll get the attention he deserves. And that story was from CNN.com. It's entitled, African Samurai, The Enduring Legacy of a Black Warrior in Feudal Japan. And if you look at the show notes and click on the link to this article, there are some pretty neat pictures in there of the referenced screen with the supposed picture of Yasuke and a few other nice ones. Check it out if you're interested. Coconut crabs are gigantic land-dwelling crabs found on islands throughout the Indo-Pacific. They can live for decades and can grow to be more than three feet wide and weigh in at more than six pounds. So that name isn't because they're the size of a coconut. It's because they can actually tear open coconuts to eat their tender meat. From discovermagazine.com Red, white, and blue crabs. These tree-climbing, bird-killing crabs come in multiple colors and no one knows why. If a coconut falls out of a tree, they'll clamp onto it on top and then drag it back to their husking ground, explained Victoria Morgan, a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Evolution and Ecology at the University of California, Davis. You can always tell where a crab hides out by the piles of coconut husks lying around. And it just so happens that these massive tree-climbing crabs come in multiple colors. They start out white as juveniles when they act like other hermit crabs and don a protective shell. Then, as they mature and grow, they turn either red or blue. Really, really red and really, really blue. It's weird that the colors are so distinctive, Morgan explained. Stark color differences within a species, or color polymorphisms as scientists call them, are found in other crab species, but they're generally in young animals. 
you'd think that kind of striking color difference arose for some evolutionary reason. Luckily, that's just the sort of colorful mystery that fascinates Tim Carrow, evolutionary scientist at UC Davis. So he asked Morgan, who was studying other land crabs at the time, to help him uncover what's going on. We wanted to test some of the more traditional explanations for different colors in nature, said Morgan. Lots of species have different colors due to sexual selection, for example, as different male and female colors can happen if females are choosy about their mate's looks or if males compete. Or it could be a simple size thing, like if shell thickness leads to one color, or the colors could provide unique advantages in different environments, like is the case with pepper moths. So, to tease apart the different possible explanations, the duo went to three different locations, the Pemba Island archipelago and Chumbe Island off Tanzania, and Christmas Island, an Australian territory south of Indonesia, and collected 325 crabs. For each, they recorded sex and took all sorts of physical measurements of the animals, including how strong they could pinch. They also recorded when and where each was found, and they even did a quick crab personality test by noting their disposition to being handled on a five-point subjective docility scale, which, for the record, goes from being shy and still to aggressive, repeatedly grasps the holding bucket and rapidly extends abdomen. On each of these islands, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the crabs were red. Most of the crabs were males in general, but there was no correlation between color and sex. There were also no correlations to weight or other measurements of size. And there was no correlation between pinching ability and color either. They did find that bigger crabs were more docile, which, when you're talking about a six-pound crab, is probably a good thing, but color didn't matter at all. The only slight hint they found was that the blue crabs seemed to be more common near the ocean, while the red ones more common inland, but the association wasn't significant. What we found to be most surprising was that none of the traditional hypotheses explained this system, Morgan said, laughing. In a couple weeks, though, Morgan and Caro are headed back to Tanzania. They hope to up the sample number to see if the habitat difference becomes significant and to try some new ideas. They want to observe them mating, for example, to determine if the different colors seem to prefer mating with one of their own. And they really want to look at the crab's DNA. The first step is to figure out what gene is responsible for the coloring in these crabs, she explained. The team has a hunch that it might have something to do with the expression of a protein called crustocyanin, which is how blue lobsters get their smurfy hue. In addition, they want to look at the expression of genes in the crab's eyes to determine whether they can even see the two colors. Some crustaceans have excellent color vision, like mantis shrimps, but that may not be the case with the coconut crab. They'll also look at the crab's genomes to get a better idea of how often the two color morphs are interbreeding. There has to be something keeping both colors around, Morgan said. Otherwise, over time, one would just disappear. You'd expect that it'd swing one way or the other so that you'd end up with all red crabs or all blue crabs, she said. The fact that we see both morphs across the different parts of their range indicates there's something that's driving them to keep the polymorphisms present in their population. We just haven't figured it out yet. In the meantime, these weird, colorful crabs will continue to eke out their existence on the islands in the Indo-Pacific, chowing on their coconuts and, well, actually, about that. 
They're not just coconut eaters. They tend to eat everything, Morgan explained. She's even seen them digging through trash bins. And their sense of smell is amazing. Whenever I was cooking on the island, they'd come from all over the island to try to eat what I was eating, she said. They'd even try to scale the gate of her kitchen area to get a taste, which she admitted was a little creepy. And they often eat at night, so they're basically the crustacean version of a raccoon. In fact, just last year, biologists confirmed that they not only will eat pretty much whatever, including carrion if they find it, they can climb trees and kill full-grown birds. Snapping a brittle booby bone is apparently easy for those powerful claws. But despite their infamous taste for flesh, they usually keep to themselves, Morgan explained. It's not like they're chasing after you. They usually just kind of meander around slowly, and they typically try to escape when approached by humans, she noted. I don't want people to think that they're a real threat to human safety. In fact, it's the crab's safety that's threatened, if anything. It's very likely that they're actually an endangered species due to population pressures from human consumption, said Morgan. These slow-growing crabs take at least five years to reach maturity, several decades to become fully grown, and can live almost as long as we do. And that means they're just not great at rebounding if their numbers crash. So if we keep messing with these amazing animals the way we are now by eating them and destroying their island homes, we may never understand their colorful lives. Now a story entitled Reports from the Labyrinth, a curious collection of uncanny occurrences. And this is written by Kurt Rowlett. It is from a book called Labyrinth 13, and the link to that book will be in the show notes if you want to take a look. H.P. Lovecraft, Graveside Tribute. Strange occurrences have been observed by attendees of the annual spring gravesite eulogy held in honor of horror writer H.P. Lovecraft. These tributes take place at the site of Lovecraft's grave at Swan Point Cemetery, located in Providence, Rhode Island, where Lovecraft was born, and also where he lived, worked, and died. Among the weird things that have been noted are sudden and unexpected changes in weather conditions occurring at the height of the graveside ceremonies. At one, a sudden flurry of snow fell for the exact length of a haunting song being sung by an attractive black-clad young woman. As soon as the song was over, the sky cleared and the sunshine reappeared. At another, Strong wind gusts were observed to coincide with the readings of selected passages from Lovecraft's works. It has also been reported that photographs taken during these services are distorted by strange, vaporous images. But perhaps most intriguingly, at one service a large flock of crows gathered in the trees surrounding the cemetery and suddenly began calling loudly during the graveside song, prompting one observer to make note of an excerpt from the service's eulogy, which reads, Mock not the crows of Swan Point, for they are the guardians of those souls which here linger. Mary Shelley and the Telltale Heart Perhaps most famous, and assuredly the most seminal group of gothic friends ever known, was comprised of Mary Shelley, she of the famous horror novel Frankenstein, her husband, poet Percy Shelley, Claire Claremont, Mary Shelley's half-sister, 
evil aristocrat, George Gordon Byron, a.k.a. Lord Byron, a seminal English poet and notorious rake rumored to have fled from England due to an incestuous affair with his own half-sister, and Dr. John Polidori, Lord Byron's secretary and personal physician, who was credited with writing and publishing the first known vampire story, and who may have been the bisexual Lord Byron's lover. These five were often in each other's company, spending the summer months vacationing together in various European locales. This group formed what was later to become recognized as one of the world's most celebrated circle of Gothic literary figures, producing some of the most prominent works and ideas that influences modern horror fiction to this day. In 1816, while the four were vacationing together on Lake Geneva in Switzerland, a parlor game was suggested that involved each of the four writing a short work of horror fiction. This occurred while the group was confined indoors during a violent thunderstorm that raged for three days. The works that were produced would become not only the genesis for Shelley's own literary career, but would serve as the inspiration for such horror masters as Bram Stoker and many subsequent works in the same genre. In 1822, Percy Shelley was drowned after his sailboat capsized on an Italian lake during a violent thunderstorm. Mary Shelley had her husband's body cremated on the same beach on which his body had washed ashore. Toward the end of the cremation process, it was observed that Percy's heart had survived the intense heat and was retrieved from the fire by Lord Byron. He eventually was to give the relic to Mary Shelley. Mary kept the heart wrapped up in a silk shroud and carried it with her wherever she went until her own death in 1851. After the death of their son, Percy Jr., the heart was placed in a silver case and buried with him. Edgar Allan Poe, Precognition and Cannibalistic Synchronicities The following is either one of the most fantastic literary coincidences of all time, or proof that Edgar Allan Poe actually possessed precognitive abilities. In 1838, Poe wrote a novel titled The Narrative of Arthur Gordon, Pym of Nantucket. In this story, Poe weaves a grisly tale of cannibalism involving four survivors of a shipwreck who managed to escape in a lifeboat, only to find themselves facing a slow death by starvation. They decide to draw lots to see who would be killed and eaten, and the fateful luck fell to their companion, a cabin boy named Richard Parker. He was promptly dispatched and devoured by the remaining three men. In 1884, almost 50 years after Poe's fictional story was published, the yacht Mignonette was sunk during a violent storm while on a voyage to Australia. The four-man crew managed to save themselves by climbing into a lifeboat. After 19 days adrift and nearing complete starvation, they killed and ate their companion, a cabin boy whose name was Richard Parker. The three cannibals survived only to later be tried and acquitted for murder after a court determined that the killing had been committed under extreme stress and dire necessity. And as if that is not enough, there is the story of the ship Francis Spate that foundered at the sea in 1846. Cannibalism and death resulted following this mishap, and one of the victims was, you guessed it, Richard Parker. But the weirdness doesn't end there. The entire chain of coincidences may have never been revealed at all had it not been for a 1974 contest 
Seeking Remarkable Coincidences, sponsored by the London Sunday Times. The winner was a 12-year-old boy named Nigel Parker, whose great-grandfather's cousin was the same Richard Parker eaten by the crew of the Mignonette. Robert Louis Stevenson. Did he get a little too close to the story? It has been reported that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote his most famous novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, during the course of a six-day cocaine binge. Stevenson was using medicinal cocaine prescribed to him to treat complications stemming from his tuberculosis affliction. Cocaine abuse is known to cause radical personality changes, including aggressiveness and extreme paranoia. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is, of course, the classic story of a split personality and concerns an English gentleman who is transformed into a violent, beast-like alter ego after drinking a secret potion. Allegedly, Stevenson's wife, Fanny, was appalled at the change in his personality while he was undergoing the cocaine treatment and was so horrified by what he had written in the first draft of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that she burnt it in the fireplace. In a letter to a friend, Fanny referred to the first draft of the novel as a choir full of utter nonsense and rubbish written by Stevenson when not in his right mind. Stevenson later rewrote the story by hand over the course of a feverish three-day period. The book became a bestseller, and its sales would lift Stevenson out of poverty. Mark Twain and the Appearance of Halley's Comet Renowned author Mark Twain's remarkable life is forever linked with a cosmic event that was, like his own time on the planet, marked by illumination, mystery, and wonder. Twain was born on November 16, 1835, at the same time that Halley's Comet was burning brightly in the sky, and he would die shortly after the comet reappeared 75 years later. Halley's Comet, one of the most famous and dramatic of celestial events, has an orbit that brings it near Earth every 75 to 76 years. The comet was named after Edmund Halley, an English astronomer who speculated that the comet's orbit was consistent, but who himself never lived to see the proof of his own accurate prediction. History shows us that appearances of Halley's Comet have been recorded for as long as 2,000 years ago. Knowing that he was nearing the end of his life, Twain was quoted as saying, I came in with Halley's Comet. It's coming again, and I expect to go out with it. The Almighty has said, No doubt, now, here are these two unaccountable freaks. They came in together. They must go out together. Twain died on April 21, 1910, the day after making the above statement, and just as the comet's brilliance was once again visible in the night sky. Here's another Mark Twain one. Mark Twain and the Ouija Board Lawsuit The surviving members of Mark Twain's family once sued a prominent book dealer to stop the publication of a book that its authors claimed Mark Twain had dictated via a Ouija board, seven years after his death. Claiming to have been in communication with the spirit of Mark Twain, spiritualist Lola Hayes and writer Emily G. Hutchings composed a manuscript based on their alleged beyond-the-grave communications with Twain while using a Ouija board. The book was titled Jap Heron and was published in 1917 by distinguished book dealer Mitchell Kennerly. The book jacket even had a full-color portrait of Mark Twain drawn by famous artist John Cecil Clay. 
Shortly afterward, a scathing review of Jap Heron was published by the New York Times. Following that, book publishers Harper and Brothers, who owned the copyrights to all of Mark Twain's works, along with Twain's surviving daughter, Clara Clemens, filed a lawsuit and the book was subsequently withdrawn from publication. This, of course, brings to mind one of Mark Twain's most famous quotes while he was still alive, that being, the report of my death was an exaggeration. And now for something completely ironic. In 1915, Felix Powell, a staff sergeant in the British Army, wrote the song, Pack Up Your Troubles in Your Old Kit Bag and Smile, 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 winning a contest for best morale-building song during the World War I era. Eventually, the song would even earn the title of the most optimistic song ever written. Powell committed suicide in 1942 by jumping out of a window. The Professor and the Madman How many times have you picked up a dictionary and thought to yourself how boring a book it seems to be? Well, you may be surprised to learn that the story of how the original Oxford English Dictionary came into being has all of the same dark and fascinating charm of a Victorian Gothic novel. The creation of the Oxford English Dictionary, or OED, a hugely ambitious task, was begun in England in 1857 by one Professor James Murray. Professor Murray would devote 40 years of his life to the project, one that he could not even hope to see completed in his own lifetime. The OED project would eventually run for 70 years and take 12 full volumes to complete. During the compilation of the OED, special notices were posted in bookstores and libraries, asking that readers and language scholars volunteer to assemble word lists that could help illustrate the meanings of certain words. Soon after, submissions began to pour in and were, for the greater part, submissions for only one or two words. But Professor Murray discovered that one man, a Dr. W.C. Minor, had submitted definitions for more than 10,000 words. A very impressive feat indeed. Nearing completion of the first few volumes, the OED committee decided to honor Dr. Minor for such hard work. Professor Murray, who had been in regular letter correspondence with Minor, repeatedly invited Minor to visit him, invitations which were always turned down. His curiosity piqued, Murray finally set out to discover just who Dr. Minor was, and a shocking truth was revealed. It seems that Dr. W.C. Minor, surgeon and American Civil War veteran, was also an inmate in Great Britain's infamous Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum, a hospital for the criminally insane. Dr. Minor, who today would probably be diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, was committed to Broadmoor Asylum for the 1871 murder of an Irish pub worker. In part, Dr. Minor's madness was fueled by a sort of post-traumatic shock, a condition that stemmed from his horrifying experiences during the American Civil War. Dr. Minor's service in the Civil War included acting as a field surgeon amid much bloody carnage on the battlefield. His post-traumatic stress also stemmed from one particular gruesome incident where he was forced by senior officers to administer punishment to an Irish deserter by branding his cheek with a red-hot iron. Shortly thereafter, Dr. Minor began to develop dark and obsessive delusions that included an extremely paranoid fear of Irishmen. 
Confined to his cell in Broadmoor Asylum, Dr. Minor became an avid and somewhat fanatical reader. He learned of the Dictionary Project when he discovered one of the OED word submission special notices that had been left between the leaves of a library book delivered to him in his asylum cell. In part, Minor's submission of over 10,000 words to the OED Project was fueled by his belief that focusing on such a task would cure him of his own psychosis. Professor Murray, after learning that Dr. Minor was an inmate at Broadmoor, finally convinced Minor to allow him to visit, and a friendship developed between the two men that would last for the duration of each of their lives. And even though the lives of Professor Murray and Dr. Minor could not have been beset by more different circumstances, both men's love of language and letters seemed to bridge what would have normally been a most awkward social situation indeed. Now a story from LancasterOnline.com Amish population grows by a thousand a year despite Lancaster County's urban sprawl and development. And this story is by Jeff Hawks. Lancaster County's fast-growing Amish population recently exceeded the 33,000 mark as the farming-oriented plain sect continues to flourish despite the encroachment of urban sprawl. The Amish, who typically have large families and drive horse-drawn vehicles and farm equipment, are growing so strongly that they accounted for an estimated 41% of the country's overall population growth last year. The U.S. Census Bureau says the county added 2,503 people in 2018. Scholars who track the local Plain community say about 1,020 of them were Amish. Lancaster County's ability to accommodate the burgeoning Amish population has become an issue in Mannheim Township, where the commissioners will soon decide whether to allow the development of a 75-acre housing and commercial project called Oregon Village in the midst of a thriving, centuries-old Amish community. Lancaster County's Amish population reached 33,143 in 2018, up 3.2% from the previous year, according to Elizabethtown College researchers. Last year's growth was typical of what's happened in recent years. Elizabethtown College's Young Center for Anabaptist and Pietist Studies bases its estimates for the Lancaster County settlement on a church district directory and Amish newspapers. Lancaster County Amish comprise 87% of the entire Lancaster County settlement, which includes parts of neighboring Chester and York counties. Since 2014, Lancaster County Amish have grown annually by over a thousand a year on average and at a 3.9% rate. That compares to a much slower 0.5% rate for the county as a whole. Overall, the county is growing by about 2,500 people a year. Although some Amish families do leave Lancaster County, their population here doubles about every 20 years. In 1970, the Lancaster County portion of the local Amish settlement numbered about 7,000. That climbed to 12,400 by 1990 and 16,900 by 2000. It has just about doubled since then. At a hearing before the Mannheim Township Commissioners this week, Donald Craybill, an authority on Amish culture and senior fellow emeritus at the Young Center, testified that there is a large Amish community in the vicinity of the village of Oregon 
and some oppose the project, although they choose not to speak up out of a faith-based reluctance to participate in government. Craybill estimated that 1,200 Amish adults and children live within a two-mile radius of Oregon. They consist of 246 households and belong to eight church districts in an area that stretches from Lancaster Airport, east of Route 501, to Leola, north of Route 23. Another four households are Old Order Mennonites who use horse and buggy. Craybill based his estimates on a church district directory and map prepared by the Geographic Information System Division of the Lancaster County Information Technology Department. The map shows 44 parcels farmed by, but not all owned by, Amish and Older Order Mennonite farmers within a couple miles of Oregon. Craybill said members of the Amish community told him they're worried that the development, if built, would increase car and truck traffic on narrow back roads and add to the risks of operating slower-moving, horse-drawn vehicles. Craybill said heavy traffic is disruptive to Amish life. The Amish are highly social and rely on buggies and carriages to attend worship services, weddings, funerals, and other activities in their tight-knit communities. Many children walk along back roads to attend the 11 one-room schools near Oregon. Craybill said that road safety issues could, over time, cause some Amish families to leave Mannheim Township for more rural areas in or outside of Lancaster County. In 2016, for example, more than a dozen Lancaster County Amish families moved to the Glen Rock area in York County and to the Farmville, Virginia area. Over the decades, 400 Lancaster County Amish congregations have moved to 13 Pennsylvania counties and 8 states, he said. Where would the Amish go if they leave Mannheim Township? Stephen Nolt, a history professor and senior scholar at the Young Center, said it's hard to say for sure, but likely locations would be more rural northern Lancaster County townships, such as Elizabeth, Penn, and Raffo. Southern Lancaster County is another possibility. They could also join the Glen Rock Settlement in York County or cross state lines to daughter Lancaster County settlements in Indiana, Kentucky, Missouri, and Wisconsin, Nolte said. One of my least favorite parts about being a middle school history teacher is the bullshit living history assignments we give at the end of every school year. Kids are supposed to sit with their grandparents and videotape, voice record, or transcribe their oldest memories for posterity and for an easy way to bring up their GPA. I've been doing this for 17 years and when I collected the projects this time around, I assumed they would be as dull, if not duller, than usual. This had not been a particularly bright class. So I went home, poured myself a glass of wine, and prepared for a long night of I only owned two pairs of pants when I was your age, and my brother got beat with a newspaper for hitting a baseball into a neighbor's yard. And of course, these projects were peppered with innocent old person comments that were so horribly sexist and racist you just had to laugh. Now, I had a girl in my class whom I will call Olivia. She was pudgy, quiet, and proved herself a consistent B student. I expected her project to be as unremarkable as her, and perhaps that's why I was so profoundly disturbed by what I witnessed that night. Olivia had submitted two discs for some reason, 
So I began with the one marked interview. My screen hiccuped twice before a grainy image of a living room came into view. The place was a hoarder's hell. Olivia was curled up in an armchair, clutching a notebook and looking like a scared animal. Across from her sat a man with a somber countenance, smoking a cigarette and staring at her expectantly. Go ahead, a woman's voice whispered from behind the camera. Olivia's owlish eyes flashed toward the screen, then back to the man. I am here with my great-uncle Stephen, she began almost inaudibly. He is going to tell us about his oldest memories from being in the army. Great-uncle Stephen looked like he'd rather be in a goddamn trench at the moment, but he waited patiently for the questions to begin. Not surprisingly, Olivia read verbatim from the suggested question sheet I had handed out to the students. He answered her curtly. Once or twice, I heard her mother whisper, Speak up, Olivia, from behind the camera. Typical boring shit. So, I was intrigued when Olivia set down the notebook and asked, Did you like being in the army? That was totally off script. Great Uncle Stephen emitted a chain smoker's wheeze. Nope. Glad to get out of my town, though. Where'd you go? Balkans. Uh-huh, she said. I doubted she knew what the Balkans were, and my suspicion was confirmed when she asked, Was Balkis very different from here? Yes. Mom cleared her throat from behind the camera, perhaps encouraging Great Uncle Stephen to be a little more forthcoming. But Olivia seemed genuinely interested. Uncle Stephen, she asked, What's your very worst memory from the army? The old man crushed his cigarette in the ashtray and then slowly lifted himself out of his chair. I'll be back, he mumbled. The camera cut off. When the screen flashed back on, everything was the same, except Great Uncle Stephen had several pieces of paper in plastic sleeves laid atop all crap sitting on his coffee table. One he held in his hand. I was a kid when I enlisted, he said, looking at Olivia. Your brother's age, he told her. Olivia nodded. I never saw combat. Both of my deployments were to cities in Eastern Europe that had been destroyed by civil wars. Everything was a mess. I felt like a janitor for fuck's sake. Ahem, Mom coughed. Great Uncle Stephen sighed and looked at his paper. My unit was assigned to a school that had been obliterated by all the violence. Broken windows, caved-in rooms, and... For some reason, the part that got to me the most was that the school had been like this for years before we got there. No one had lifted a finger to fix it. I saw kids walk by it on their way to go beg for money or whatever shit they did. The camera dipped towards the floor as I heard Mom whisper harshly at Great Uncle Stephen. I couldn't make out what she was saying, but it wasn't hard to imagine. Do you want to hear this goddamn story or not? I heard him bark in response. Then you better let me tell it how I want. Mom, Olivia chimed, please stop interrupting. Are you presenting this in front of the class? No, Mom, we're just handing it in to the teacher. I'm sure he's heard the word shit before, Great Uncle Stephen contributed helpfully. I wasn't a he, as a matter of fact, but other than that, the statement was accurate. The camera was lifted, and after a couple of blurry focus adjustments, the shot was the same as before. Nah, I'm talking too much anyway, he grumbled. He lifted the piece of paper in his hand, close to his face. In the basement, I found this letter, 
I didn't know what it said, but I had a buddy of mine translate it. So I'm going to read it now. And then I'll tell you what I saw in that basement. A chill ran down my spine. Mom zoomed in to Great Uncle Stephen and his letter. His palsied hands trembled as he held up the paper. This is what he read. Dear Sir, I never loved my country. So many of these skirmishes are born from patriotism, a power struggle for the shards of a once great empire, but I do not care what name my home has on a map. This fighting is senseless, and I stay as far away from it as I can. It was not these attacks and disorganized violence that took the lives of my wife and child. It was illness. Mercifully, it happened quickly for the baby. Nadja suffered for longer. I watched in horror, knowing I could do nothing for them. My only solace is that I was there for them every step of the way. I stopped going to work one day, and no one came after me. I doubt they noticed I was gone. Since the school was simply across a field, visible from my window, it would have been easy to go out for a few hours each day and come home quickly to care for them. But what was the point? All I did was clean floors. I was as useless to the world as I was to my family. I tried to take Nadja to the hospital, but the journey was too long and taxing. I brought her home and she died that night. After Nadja and the baby were gone, well, I don't remember much. I didn't leave my hovel, barely ate and slept, thought many times of taking my own life. Tempting though it was, I felt paralyzed by my own helplessness. The one thing that kept me sane was my radio. I never turned it off once, even though I didn't listen to the words being said. In fact, the channel I got the clearest was in English, I think, which I don't speak a lick of. But the voices, the music, and the true knowledge that life existed beyond this violent city sustained me. I have no idea how much time passed before I saw the light of day again. I was dizzy from hunger, so finding food was my priority. My radio came with me, of course. Since I first hold myself up, it's gone everywhere with me. It talks to me as I sleep and as I wake. I don't know what it's saying, but I know I would die without it. Once I had some water and food, it occurred to me that the only thing left to do was go back to work. So I did. The following morning, I simply returned to the school where I was a janitor and got back to work. Nobody made a big deal out of it. Like I said, Nadja had been sick for a long time, and those who worked at the school knew it. I appreciate that no one had pestered me to come back to work during the hardest days of my life. The teachers never said much to me, but we smiled at each other in the halls, and that mutual respect was perhaps the reason I decided to come back at all. The place had gone to the dogs without me, so I simply grabbed my broom and rags from my closet and set to cleaning. Everyone is grateful to have me back, I know. And the best part is that nobody minds my radio. I bring it with me everywhere and keep the volume low enough not to disrupt the students. No one has ever complained. In fact, I suspect they like it. The schoolhouse is not very big, but it does require a lot of maintenance. The floors are always sticky and stained, so I spend most of my time mopping. Kids make messes. I guess that's why I'm still in business. Sometimes I have to move things around to make sure I get every spot on the floor beautiful and clean, but I take pride in that. And the repairs. The school always needs tune-ups here and there, and I'm happy to help. 
Some days I'm reconstructing the desk that broke as I whistle along with the radio. Other times I handle more serious, structural issues. Days when I have work like this, I feel truly instrumental, like a cog in a larger machine. How could this school survive without me? It took me a long time, but I once again feel that I have purpose. There is a larder behind the school that's full of preserved food. In lieu of payment, I'm allowed to take as much food as I need. That arrangement is fine. Well, what would I do with money, anyway? I used to bring the food back to my home, just one field away from the school. But when I started sleeping in the basement, no one seemed to notice. This school is special to me, and I cannot leave it unguarded. When I'm besieged with memories of my wife and baby, I turn up the volume on the radio to drown out such thoughts. It works for me every time, except this morning. Because this morning, I woke up to dead silence. I frantically examined the radio to see what had happened. I honestly cannot tell you how many days in a row I've been using it. Did it simply live out its life and die naturally? I spent the entire day trying to fix it. Most of this time, I've been crying. I'm losing my mind without it. I've given myself until sundown. If I cannot fix it by then, I'm going to take my life. I'm writing this because the sunlight is starting to die, and I know what my fate shall be. I've thought about taking one last walk through the halls of my school, saying goodbye to the students and teachers. I know I will be missed, but I cannot bring myself to leave this room. I cannot go anywhere knowing that my radio is dead in here. There are no more tears in me. It feels now like I can't catch my breath. I vomited what little food I had in my stomach and am growing dizzy again, like I did after Nadja died. I'm not long for this world. But before I take my life, I've closed the door to this room and stuck a chair beneath the handle. It is the only room in the basement and has a small casement that lets in just enough light for me to see what I'm doing. If anyone is kind enough to come looking for me, they should not be met with this gruesome sight. Perhaps they will see the door is blocked, smell my rotting body, and simply forget that I ever existed. But I've placed both my radio and this note outside the door. Kind sir, if you're reading this, I have one humble request. Please fix it. Save my radio. It did not deserve to die in its sleep, and I'm ashamed that I cannot revive it. Now I'm ready to join Nadja and little Ludmilla in heaven. I hope this school can find another janitor who loves and cares for it the way I do. The hour is now. Do not forget my radio. Stanislav When Mom zoomed back out, Olivia had tears in her eyes. Thank you for sharing, Uncle Stephen, Mom said, her voice choked. I think we have enough. Wait, Olivia chirped. He said there's more. What did you find? Before Great Uncle Stephen could open his mouth, the image disappeared. My jaw dropped. Was that it? What did Great Uncle Stephen see? I promptly remembered that there was a second disc. This one was unmarked, but I hoped it contained the rest of the interview. There was no video, only audio. The voice that started up was Olivia's. Hi, Miss Garrity. I'm sorry about my mom, but 
She refused to record the rest of what my uncle was saying, but I asked him to continue and secretly recorded the story as a voice memo on my phone. I remember you said earlier this year that history is written by the people who win wars. She sucked in a breath and commenced crying. But everyone's history is important, even if they're sad, pathetic people, and even if they never won a single thing in their life. I haven't slept through the night since I finished this project, but you have to hear what my uncle has to say. There were tears in my eyes, too. The sincerity of her words was beautiful. I was also flattered that she had remembered some trite phrase I threw around because it was what my history teachers said to me. Before I got too sappy over it, the audio began again. Fine, came Mom's frustrated voice. If you want to hear the rest of this story, fine, but this is not appropriate for a school project. Let me finish, Great Uncle Stephen snapped. If it's too much for you, help yourself to a snack in the kitchen. But Olivia wants to know what happened. I heard her mother mumble something and walk away. Olivia and her uncle were alone. I imagined her looking at him expectantly. So did you find the radio, or did it get ruined when the school got blown up? He rasped, and I heard the distinct click of a lighter. That letter, he began slowly, had a date on it. What date? she inquired hungrily. It was dated two weeks before we started rebuilding the school. Didn't you say the school had been destroyed like two years ago? Yes, replied Great Uncle Stephen. It had been. There was silence as I felt goosebumps on my arms. The images that came to my mind were almost too overwhelming to express, but Great Uncle Stephen put them into words effortlessly. Clearly, he had spent his whole life thinking about it. This man, this Stanislav, went to a vandalized, fallen-apart schoolhouse and cleaned up blood and rubble like it was spilled drinks and dust. He smiled at dead bodies in the hallway and believed they were smiling back at him because they liked his radio. He moved around corpses so he could sweep the ground under them. The roof was half-collapsed, so when it rained, he must have gotten soaking wet, but was so oblivious that he didn't even feel a thing. I could hear Olivia crying steadily. I found the larder he was talking about. It was all pickled, preserved food that probably tasted like shit. Most of the stuff was moldy. Did, did you see the dead body? Yeah, hanging from the ceiling, but still amazingly lifelike. He wasn't rotting away. This hadn't happened years ago. Did he look peaceful, she asked, a chord of desperation in her voice. Couldn't tell you. The smell was rank, and his face was blue, and his eyes were bulging like this. I imagined him demonstrating. And the radio? Olivia wept. I heard Great Uncle Stephen take a long drag of his cigarette. It was there, all right. And it was still on. And that story was from Creepypasta.com. It was written by Christine O'Neill. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, so you can message me on there if you'd prefer. Until next time, 
I'll talk to y'all later. 